My sister is not hearing me say that out loud. She would just say, what is wrong with you? Um, they're lifelong Chiefs fans, so if you know, all right. I want to encourage you, if you have your Bible, we're going to return to the lectionary texts this week. And uh, over these next three weeks, <clears throat> the uh, uh, candle mass was a week ago. And so over these next three weeks, uh, th these sort of three Sundays, the focus of the church was to invite us to be reminded that we are the light of the world. Okay, so I love that visual, the idea, you know, the candle mass idea, you take a little candle and you're walking out into the villages and the towns and proclaiming light in the place of darkness and it happened to fall in the calendar right in between the winter solstice and the summer solstice. And, and if you reach into the depth of that, what we're agreeing is that God brings life. He's the one that restores and brings life and we're, we're agreeing for that. And so this focus is... The focus of these next three weeks traditionally for the church has been the focus of the reality that we have been called to be the light of the world. And then we'll, we're going to move into uh, the Lent season here in just a little bit. Uh, the text we're looking at is Matthew chapter 5, 21 to 37. The other text that we're going to be looking at is probably not in the Bible that you have in front of you, but it is from the Bible. Okay? It's from Sirach. Chapter 15, verses 14 and 17. I'll explain that after a little bit. All right? Amen. The title I've given the message this morning is Choosing Rules or Choosing Life. Uh, as we look at Jesus, one of the things that we're going to see as Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount is that he brings width and depth uh, oftentimes we want to look at the Sermon on the Mount. I have been uh, fall prey to saying things like this, that, you know, Jesus is almost as if he's excusing the old covenant, and uh, he's given us a new covenant. But really what he's done is he's bringing depth and width to the, to the heart of the issue. And so we're going to look at that some more. But choosing rules or choosing life is the title I've given the message. Uh, in 1974, our family uh, made a move uh, from just outside of Colorado Springs, Colorado. Most of my childhood was, uh, you know, if I told you guys, this is just ridiculous. I mean, I would wake up and eat breakfast and look out my window, big old picture window, and there was Pikes Peak. I thought everybody lived like that. I never knew Indiana existed. But it did, and it does. Uh, but we made this move from... Colorado Springs to Monte Vista, Colorado. So Monte Vista would be the mount with a view. Um, and so you might have ideas in your mind of, uh, you know, streams and mountains and trees. And before you even go there, I need to point this out, that Monte Vista is in the center of the San Luis Valley, and it's in south-central Colorado. It's surrounded by uh, a whole range of mountains, the um, San Juan Mountains on the one side and the Santa de Cristo Mountain Range on the other side. It's about 120 miles to the north and the south and 70, 60 to 75 miles, mattering where you're at, to the east and the west. It's a valley in the mountains. It's roughly 7,500 to 8,000 feet above sea level. So it's a you know, very high valley. And uh, it, it gets better. Ready? It's 
I'm trying to paint the proper picture here. It is the highest alpine valley in the world. And it is, uh, let me see here, the largest high altitude desert in North America. It gets less than seven inches of rain per year. My sister has lived there most of her life with her husband. They are farmers. Don't you feel bad for them? I do a little bit. They farm. <laughs> it gets killing frost 12 months of the year. It has been recorded. So they have a 90-day growing season. Um, and you know, so we moved there. Why did we move there? To start a farm. I have real stories of, like, pulling on my, my farming boots at minus 20 below almost every day to go out and feed the hogs, take care of the chickens. We picked up a, my, my father bought a plot of land, but it was, it was a 40-acre plot of land that had been abandoned for a number of years. The only house on that land was an old adobe house where the, the, the roof had fallen in, literally. The only thing left in the building was this potbelly stove that we made use of later, if I recall right. Uh, we used it to heat the hog barn later. Um, then uh, we built the rest of the farm literally around uh, the old barn. Now, brought in a modular house. Okay, so you get the point. It's this boggy piece of land near the Rio Grande River. And it's everything everything in that, uh, that place was hard. Why did we go there? Well, it certainly wasn't for the climate. And it wasn't because the conditions were all that great. It's actually because my father had grown in relationship with a man who was leading a, a, a kind of a, a, a what do I call it? It was a, not a church, but it was a church. Okay, they met in homes. And it was a part of what was in the 1970s known as the discipleship movement. And this man was a shepherd in that shepherding movement. But he also happened to own a, a couple of pieces of land. One of them had a feedlot on it with hundreds of cows on it, and it had a piece of land next to it. And so he proposed to my father. He said, why don't you move here? It would be good for your family, and you can take over the feedlot while I'm doing the ministry that I'm doing. So my father came, joined, uh, you know, invited us quite reluctantly to leave where we were. Uh, the family was a little bit reluctant. We, we, we go through this radical change to become a part of this fellowship that later on, by the way, we found out was just a little bit on the oddball side because in this shepherding movement, they had based a lot of their uh, teachings on a book written by Juan Carlos Ortiz, um, who later, by the way, I met. That's a bunny trail. I met him back in 1996. I remember I, at a preaching school I went to and sat and had lunch with him a couple of different times. And he, he, I, I said, you know, what was with that? He said, well, I wrote a book. I never intended to start a movement. The other people just took my book and used it. But what happened in that movement was uh, it became so focused on the idea. Their idea was we're not going to build a church. We're not going to have memberships. We're going to have people know us because we're true disciples of Jesus. But what they really emphasized was what I want to say would be almost an authoritarian style that they really got focused on the topic of accountability to the point that in the little fellowship that we were part of, the shepherd came into one man's home to discipline his children because he wasn't disciplining them. It got weird, okay? And so after we were there for a little while, I recall the fact that uh, my, my father uh, not only re recognized something isn't going well here, we began to pull away from that fellowship. But oddly enough, 
our farm is located right next to his property. And then it happened. So you had this strain of relationship, right, that occurred where we said, you know what, I think you might be off. Well, there was a notice that came in the mail, if I recall. I don't know, you know, I'm not sure exactly how the, the sequence went because I never really picked my dad's brain about how all of that came down. But here was the bottom line. The manager of the feedlot that had hundreds of cows on it threw out the accusation that one of their cows was missing. And he saw it on our property. And this, you know, there was a, a wrangling of exchanges. Finally, the, the, the man who formerly had been a friend and a mentor in our life was threatening legal action. And truth be told, we did not have the missing cow. And again, I wasn't included in all these exchanges that took place. But I remember what happened on this particular day because it's just one of those, those moments. My dad, I'm not sure what, you know, what happened that brought him to this place, but he hollered at us, boys, that was our name identity, boys, get the trailer. So we got the trailer, hooked it up to the truck. What are we doing, dad? We got this beautiful cow that we had just given birth to a calf. And, I mean, it was one of our better ones. Put it in the truck. What are we doing? Come on, get in the truck. What are we doing? We drove down about a half a mile. Might have been a mile total by the time, you know, got around, came around this big old uh, part of the, uh, of the get, getting over to the feedlot. And, as, and then we realized where we were at. We were at the feedlot of the man who's accusing us of stealing a cow. And... After we arrived there, we're greeted by a very confused man who said, um, what, 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 what are you doing? What are you doing? He said, I have something. Just tell me where to back up. Now, I, 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 need to call, I need to call Jim. He said, no, you don't. We're here. We're going to deliver it. And so there we were. We delivered the, the cow and the calf. No bill. No last words. And I remember how confused my brother and I were like, what are we doing? Um, because we're gifting what the very person who had accused us of taking, we're gifting him with something and more. And later my dad told the story that shortly after Jim wrote a letter and he wrote in that letter something like this, all debts forgiven in brotherly love. Now, my dad was a stubborn man, and there were other moments I could tell you about that didn't go that well, okay? But in that moment, and on that day, he gave me an imagination for another way to live in what seemed like an unreconcilable situation. Um. What, what seemed clear to us, my brother and I, was that we needed to defend the truth and prove it. We, didn't have anything, we hadn't done anything wrong. And yet, my, my father lived a different path that at the moment didn't even seem to make sense. Was he admitting he was wrong? No. He was just choosing a way of life and love toward a brother who had wrongly accused him. And that day, I saw something of Jesus in my dad. In the text that we're going to look at today, 
Jesus' words, they, they sound something like this. You've heard that it was said, you know, fill in the blank, keep the rules, but I say to you, and it seems like the, the message he gives is even broader and wider, and he invites us to, the idea that not only is he intensifying it, but he wants us to internalize a message that some of us might say, well, Jesus is expanding the rules. Better try a little harder. But I want to remind us before we go into this text that right before the text here, he said, you are the light of the world. A city in a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bushel. Instead, they put it on a stand. It gives light to everyone in the house. The goal, beloved, listen to me, the goal as we look at the Sermon on the Mount is not that we get better at keeping the rules better than others. Enough comparison. The goal, beloved, is that we live in our original job description as fully human that's what Jesus is doing. And his point wasn't that we become better law keepers who look at the Bible. You know, at one point in my life, I, I love that little cliche, basic instructions before leaving earth, so you better memorize lots of it. And I did. Nothing wrong with that. But our goal isn't how many verses we can quote. Our goal is that we live as image bearers who are gloriously human. The salt of the earth, the light of the world. Beloved, Jesus didn't come to simply settle accounts. You know, we've talked about this before. The idea of the gospel is not a Genesis 3 idea where he came to just get rid of our sin debt or to manage our debt. That's the gospel of sin and sin management. He came to restore something to man that is not settled just by obeying the rules. He came to remove every obstacle of love. So when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, please hear this. He's not make, trying to make our life harder. To, you know, oh my goodness, if I get angry, I'm in trouble. He's not trying to catch you. The gospel is never about rules. It's about restoration. Okay? About making us fully human beings who are living in and from love who can represent that love to the world around us. And, beloved, that is indeed good news. It's giving us another way to live, another imagination. The two texts this morning I want to look at. Oh, my goodness, I'm going to have to talk fast. All right. Sirach, 15. Before we go there, everybody who grew up out of a Catholic tradition, I want to set everybody at ease. Ready? Take a deep breath. Okay. Those basically five books, and whether, you know, some traditions six, but most of us are familiar, you know, there's part of the Old Testament, the apocryphal books. Can, can I just point it to a couple of things? First of all, in the Old Testament Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that Jesus would have read and his disciples would have read that he's referring to when he talks about the law and the prophets, it included this book. 
It was written about 150 B.C. During those, you know, some of us grew up in a tradition where you heard about 400 years of silence. Actually, it wasn't really that silent. God's always been talking. But this was written during that time, along with the book of Maccabees. Now, I grew up in a tradition where he said, they're not necessary. True, but there's some really interesting stuff here. What happened with them, Pastor? Well, at 1546, at the Council of Trent, 1546, 1,500 years after Jesus is when it was kicked out. About 600 years ago, the reformers said, we don't need those. So you do with that what you want. I'm just saying I think there might be some things worth paying attention to. So here we go. That's a little backdrop to why I'm referring to this book. It's in the lectionary. I think it's okay. All right? 15, I'm only going to get 14 and 17. Verse 14, when God in the beginning created man, he made him subject to his own free choice. Verse 17, before man, by the way, verse 16, I believe, says there's fire and water in front of him. But verse 17 says, before man are life and death, whatever he chooses will be given to him. Jesus' words. You have heard that it was said to the ancients long ago, you're not to commit uh, murder, but whoever commits murder shall be liable to court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty of the very fire of hell. Therefore, if you're presenting your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there at the altar. Now, Jesus is talking to Galileans about when they're offering their gift in Jerusalem, a three-day walk away. He isn't just saying, oops. He's saying intentionality. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Make friends. With your adversary who's taking you to court, do it while you're still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over, uh, or excuse me, he may hand you over to your, uh, the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you'll not get out until you paid the last penny. Now, I, I don't, I'm going to skip reading the remainder of this. I will refer to it. I encourage you to take a look at it. But here's the point. According to Jesus, it isn't just for murder that we would be held liable, but also for things like anger and insult and name-calling. By his definition, adultery isn't solely determined by physical relationships, but by thoughts and desires and fantasies. In Jesus' eyes, divorce might be sometimes legal, but there are lasting consequences. For Jesus, honesty, let your yes be yes and your no be no, Anything beyond comes from the evil one. Truth telling are not governed by an oath that we speak, but by the words that we allow out of our mouth. So if we thought that Jesus cutting slack on the law, we actually need to rethink that. He's not coming to replace it. He's actually expanding, intensifying it. He's not changing it. He's internalizing it. Now, let me also point to this that he's speaking to a Jewish community that's living under Roman occupation, who day after day, the majority of these, now Paul was a Roman citizen, a rare 
you know, kind of a rare bird, but for the majority of Jesus' listeners, they're not Roman citizens. They don't have the rights of Romans. They're second class. Um, there are a number in the Jewish community who have compromised, publicans, tax collectors, so that they can feel like they get some of the privileges of the Romans. Uh, that for the sake of gaining wealth and privilege. And then you've got these long-going generational resentments that have gone on between groups, the Samaritans and the Jews and those who've wronged one another generationally. And so Jesus is speaking to individuals who, when they read the Bible that says the kingdom of God is coming to Israel, well, here's a couple things. First of all, most of their life is spent in surviving, not thriving. So when they think the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God had to be the absence of the things that are causing me pain. Seems logical to me. But Jesus invites them into a new imagination. He says, well, you know, what if, what if there's another way to live when something takes residence in our heart that represents heaven in the midst of a very hellish experience? Jesus is speaking to people who are living with real resentment and anger toward these abusive occupiers who have dealt real insults against foreigners. Who are, and he's suggesting maybe there's another way to live that goes beyond just being a really good rule keeper, that you could live in and from love toward the very people who are insulting you. Jesus is revealing what it means to be the light of the world. And then he does it. So it's not enough that you don't murder, but that you do not allow your heart to have an imagination that that other person never existed. Oh, wait. Have I done that? See, the reason that he points to anger is because, and I, I'm gonna, I want to take just for a minute to point to that because, man, oh, man. Um, it's inevitable for any of us who go through life to not have things that have happened that we're like, ouch, that hurts, and that makes me kind of angry. So inevitably, there is a defense in us to want to belittle the source of that pain. And Jesus, he gives a solution. He says, be reconciled and make friends. What? Live from a place that your heart is anchored in love or you'll be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, I've read these verses many, many times. I've memorized them years and years ago. And I can recall times when I'm you know, trying to take it seriously, meditate upon them. I'm like, ah, I don't want that to be stuck in there because I don't want to wind up there, right? And, uh, you know, get real literal about it. Pluck your eye out, you know. Like, yuck. Uh, cut your hand off. Now, Jesus is saying be radical about the things that you're allowing to harbor in here. Otherwise, the end game is hellish. Can I just bring us into the context? I know Debbie has been to Jerusalem. I think Matt's been to Jerusalem. Um, there is a little valley outside of Jerusalem now. You don't, 
you wouldn't recognize it now, but when Donovan went, he said, Dad, I went to hell today. Called, uh, called us on the phone. That, you can laugh. It's okay. It's an actual place, a little valley that was called hell, Gehenna, the dump. And in the dump, the fire never went out. There's something always burning there. Jesus is speaking, and he says, you're going to be in danger of having something burn inside of you. So I want to offer this translation as you think about Matthew chapter 5. Um, you know, what are you allowing to, to, to burn inside of here, down here? What fire is burning in you? Is it the fire of love, or is it the fire of resentment, bitterness, anger, judgment? And oh, by the way, all of us get touched with that stuff. Which one am I going to let burn in me? And by the way, it is hell to live with resentment and bitterness and judgment burning inside of you. So Jesus says, be reconciled. How do I do that? Well, first, we love because he loved us, right, first. We forgive because he forgave us. So we receive that for ourselves. So I, I want to say something about this. Being reconciled doesn't mean peace at all costs. Um, or if I could give a rough translation this way, you know, paying the price of admission with an abusive person, you will agree with how I'm saying things are or I won't talk to you. That, that's not what we're talking about. That's not reconciliation where the other person saying, I'm going to dictate the way things are. Reconciliation begins from the, a place of how I hold that person in my heart. Am I going to hold a debt of forgiveness, bitterness, resentment, or pain in my heart, or am I going to release that and live from a place of love and hold them in my heart? So fundamental to a functional relationship is not just a one-sided transaction, but reciprocal love, back and forth, right? Everybody's saying yes? Yeah, right. So to be reconciled means that I open my heart, I hold no account, and I choose to live in love towards that person. That might mean I have to do that more than once in a day. And I've had to do that. She's had to do that with me more than once in a day. True, right, babe? Yeah. I mean, it's just... But that's part of relational living in reciprocal love. So be reconciled. That means I'm choosing to live with the consequences of someone else's sin in my life, and I'm choosing to hold them in love and to hold them rightly in my heart, make friends, choose to extend what I've been given. So Jesus, what are you giving us here in Matthew 5? A commentary on the cross-shaped life. Matthew 5, verses, what, where do we go? 3 to 12. You know, those Beatitudes is really about the cruciform life, the cross-shaped life. It's not a life filled with more do's and don'ts, but he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, let me remind us of something. One of those dudes went up to Jesus and said, all of these I've kept since my youth, and Jesus didn't argue with him. He was a really good rule keeper. But true righteousness is about a wholeness that comes from inside, not outside. So keeping the law, just keeping it, never was, never will be the goal. 
Genesis 1 and 2. That's the goal. Relationship and representation. It's always been the goal. Under the law, a dude could go to the temple and pray, I'm glad I'm not like that publican right over there. I don't mean to point at you guys. Sorry. Um, because, the, uh, you know, the object of his passion was how well he could justify himself. We're all pretty good at justifying ourselves in our own eyes. You know, I'm not like them. I'm not as bad as that evil leader bombing the innocent. But we have an incredible inborn ability here to justify ourselves. Religion's an ugly thing, isn't it? <laughs> it's easy for me to go, yeah, look at those religious people. It's like, oh, dude, <laughs> right there. Okay. So, I mean, you know, it's easy to look at the parodies. I, uh, I saw one that just broke my heart. I mean, it's like I'm, I'm watching this interview of, of a dude who's a member of the Proud Boys. And uh, he made some statement and said, you know, we don't just let anybody in our group. You've you got to believe in God and say the Pledge of Allegiance and not beat your wife. And if memory serves me right, he said it in that order. And I thought, God help us. I mean, I, you, I, I don't believe you actually know the God that Jesus revealed. But you're using words that parrot it. So, again, religion is ugly. I have to recognize it first in me. So, Jesus comes, and one of the first things that offend, you know, the people that he's most offensive to are the ones who are so indoctrinated in religion. He's hanging out with sinners, and he's proclaiming God's love for them, and he's saying, your faith is me. Faith has made you well. What about me? Well, the entire point of the atonement, many of us, I, I grew up in a tradition where we, we were taught the idea that the atonement, that Jesus came to fulfill the demand of God's justice for our sin. So in more crass way that, you know, the father had to beat the literal hell out of his son in order to forgive you. That's, that's a, a perversion of the gospel. He came to restore mankind to actual love, to a reciprocal love relationship in which we could begin to occupy our original job description, to represent that love to the world, to become fully human now. Amen. Amen, Ben. So, what does that mean? I, I, I want to invite us. Again, I, I only looked pretty much at anger. I didn't get into the other two topics there of divorce and being individuals of our words. But, beloved, I, I want to invite us. Jesus, continue to show us there's another way to live. And part of, part of getting there means I've got to recognize how at times I can get fragmented. Where I look like one thing on the outside, but on the inside there's something else going on inside of me. So I, I, I want to invite us, I want to close this morning by sharing a poem. I, I came across this poem this morning, and uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw it into the sermon notes later, but I, I just want to read this poem over us. It's by Edwina Gately, Called to Say Yes. Remember that 
put life and death before you, okay? We're called to say yes, that the kingdom might break through to renew and to transform our dark and groping world. We stutter and we stammer to the lone God who calls and pleads a new Jerusalem in the bloodied Sinai Straits. We're called to say yes, that honeysuckle may twine and, and twist its smelling leaves over the grays of nuclear arms. We're called to say yes, that we may play on the soil of Vietnam where tanks belched blood and death. We're called to say yes, that black may sing with white and pledge peace and healing for the hatred of the past. We're called to say yes, so that nations might gather and dance one great movement for the joy of mankind. We're called to say yes, so that rich and poor embrace and become equal in their poverty through the silent tears that fall. We're called to say yes, that the whisper of our God might be heard through, the, uh, through our sirens and screams of our bombs. We're called to say yes to a God who still holds fast to the vision of the kingdom for a trembling world of pain. We're called to say yes to this God who reaches out and asks us to share his crazy dream of love. What does it look like? Lord, it looks like being reconciled with my brother over being right in my own head. It means making friends, honoring love that actually reveals heaven on earth. We're a greater sign and wonder. Guys, I was thinking about this this week. I grew up in a tradition where we believe in, you know, really proclaim regularly the idea of signs and wonders. I believe in that. But is there any greater sign and wonder than cross-shaped love? I don't believe there is. And it was revealed in Jesus Christ. May it be revealed in my life that I would look like a man who's living in humble honesty that my yes is yes and my no is no. Jesus, we thank you this morning that you came to restore, to renew, to remove every obstacle to love. Lord, we thank you that you're not just trying to catch us in another set of rules, but that you're proclaiming that we could live as whole human beings, living in and from the Father's love, representing heaven on earth. Lord, that we would proclaim good news. We pray that, Father, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I want to invite you, if you would, to stand with me. And uh, 